Greetings and salutations. You're listening to This Ends at Prom, a podcast where I, teen movie apologist BJ Colangelo, show my wife, Harmony Colangelo, a seminal teen girl movie that I missed out on because I grew up as a teen boy. Is today's movie truly emblematic of womanhood? Or of rose-colored nostalgia glasses or your perspective? Circle yes, no, or maybe to find out if we're crowning a queen? Or if we're killing the teen dream. Welcome to This Ends at Prom. This Ends at Prom is a Pod People production. I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I. Welcome back, prom party. Hello! You are joining us for another installment of May Musical Month, and I hope you've been enjoying it as much as we are. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm still proud of that horrible pun that I came up with in, like, November. That's very true. That's very true. It was just a, hey, what if we did this? And I'm like, well, the pun's too good. It's gotta happen now. Thank you. I worked not hard on it at all. <laughs> Today's installment is probably the closest to an actual musical. We've been doing a lot of like music adjacent movies and this is this is a full-fledged musical that we've got going on here. This is a classic musical. This is a refined musical. A golden age standard, sure, if you will. <laughs> but of course, we want to highlight the ones that are doing something different and doing something a little bit more fun. So, we've got something really exciting for you. And speaking of exciting, you can always support the show on Patreon, mm-hmm. patreon.com backslash this ends at prom. Give us some love over there. We always appreciate having new members of our community. I'm sharing a bunch of dumb musical theater stuff over there. And oh, yeah. We're doing teen boy musical stuff on there this month. No, It's so fun. <laughs> so if you want a little bit more of what you've been getting on the free show, head on over there. But as far as today, we we are not alone today because we knew that we wanted to cover this topic, but we needed someone else with as much passion and understanding of this world as, frankly, what I have. So I would like to introduce to you our guest today, cosplayer, actor, just absolute wonderful human being, Ventus Phillips. Hi, Ventus. Hello. <laughs> Welcome Hi. to the show. So happy you're here. Oh my gosh, me too. I'm I've been looking forward to this literally since you brought it to my attention. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. So, Ventus, what movie are we talking about today? We are talking about the 1997, I guess, remastered of the classic Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella, starring Brandy and Whitney Houston. Hell yes, we are. <laughs> the the absolute peak of TV movie perfection, if you ask me. Agreed. A hundred percent. I mean, it feels kind of silly to ask what Cinderella's about, but I'm going to do it anyway. So instead of asking our friend Dango, uh, Ventus, what's, uh, what's this version of Cinderella all about? Well, this version of Cinderella is all about a young woman named Cinderella who uh, her father has since passed away and she is living with her stepmother and stepsisters who 
treat her uh, in the not nicest of manners, and uh, she finds her way to the ball and meets a lovely prince, but he can't remember what she looks like at all, so he has to scour <laughs> the kingdom with a shoe in order to find the love of his life. Uh, very much the same story overall as every version of Cinderella out there, but somehow done so much better. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. So Harmony, in terms of this particular version of Cinderella, what was your knowledge before being presented with it? I did not know dink all about this before <laughs> it was brought to my attention because it was a few months ago. I think they had just added it to Disney Plus and everyone's like, oh my God, and flipping out. And I'm going, what is this? What? <laughs> and you're like, no, this was a big deal. I'm like, evidently, but I don't remember it. <laughs> I mean, I love when we get to movies that you've really had no experience with uh-huh. because then I get to watch you watch these movies with completely fresh eyes and watching this movie with you was a trip because you're also not somebody who's super steeped in musicals or musical it's theater culture. Classic musical theater, especially. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. yeah, classic musicals. So watching you watch this was a true delight. Thank you. I, I, <laughs> I'm glad I was entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> For those that don't know, um, this legitimately was one of the most impactful and important moments in made-for-TV movie history. Um, At the time, it was one of the most watched at like 60 million viewers, which is unfucking heard of. And it was also given a $12 million budget, which to this day is one of the highest budgets for a made-for-TV movie. (laughs) Like, they really took out all the bells and whistles. And this was originally supposed to be the relaunch of Disney's, you know, the wonderful world of Disney, like the the movie specials they would do on like ABC. And this was supposed to be the, hey, remember this? We're doing it again. And I kind of think they knocked it out of the park. That's just me, though. So, Harmony, what was going on and what was cool at this point culturally, because I want to set the stage. Let's rewind the time and bring us back into 1997. Well, you talked about the wonderful world of Disney getting rebooted, but at the same time this was going on, this is when you got the Disney Channel original movie rebranding. Okay. Because the first ever, like, officially recognized DCOM came out, like, a week before this. Oh, really? Like, Under Wraps came out? Under Wraps came out, like, a week before this in 1997. And, you know, before that, you'd had, like, Wish Upon a Star or The Paper Brigade, which I know you are huge fans of. Love them both. Like, just barely preceding this. But then that starts the entire Disney Channel original movie trend that would carry on to, like, very popular heights in Mm -hmm. the 90s for the Disney Channel. And I kind of wanted to just look at where the Disney Corporation was in their releases. Because I have to say... Of the films they were putting out in 1997, this is the best one. Because <laughs> it's it's there's some good stuff, but there's some really dodgy things. So looking at the other Disney releases that were released theatrically this year included uh, That Darn Cat. Okay, I'm an apologist for That Darn Cat. I don't know about you, Ventus. Uh, I uh, actually haven't seen that one, surprisingly. That seems like oh. something that's very on brand for me, but I somehow missed that one. Christina Ricci's in it. It's a little campy. It's kind of dumb. I love it. (laughs) Campy and dumb is the name of the game for the releases this year. Because you also have, which I'm a huge apologist for, which is George of the Jungle with Brendan Fraser. Uh, Oh. 
Yes. Himbo icon. <laughs> He's so <laughs> handsome in this. Oh my God. Uh, you have the less fun jungle movie of Jungle to Jungle with Tim Allen. Okay. Oh. But. But. <laughs> problematic representation of indigenous cultures aside. But. Lily Sobieski in Jungle to Jungle was very eye-opening for my, like, seven-year-old baby gay ass. Uh-huh. <laughs> also, they have that one kid who is also in Detroit Rock City that I love. There's some pretty good physical comedy from Martin Short in that movie, too. But, yeah, there's some... Oh, it's bad. Oh, it's and not also, aged it's just, well. It's Tim Allen, so, like... Yeah, he's like, also not that. aged well, just uh, as a human. Other camp things include Rocket Man with Harlan Williams. Oh. The brief period where they try to turn him into a leading man. Flubber, which is a, a complicated film in terms of quality. My favorite part is when uh, the bad goons trying to steal Flubber are Mr. Krabs and Buffalo Bill. Yeah, that's a that's that's a casting choice they made. <laughs> it's true. Uh, Airbud came out this year. Okay, that's a classic though. And oh, yes, the big Disney release of the year is Hercules. Oh, oh. well, Herc. Okay, Ooh. you. You said that this Cinderella is the best one, and I I can't agree with you because Hercules is the best animated Disney movie ever. I like Hercules. I like it a lot. I don't know if I like it as much as this movie, though. <gasps> really? Really. Don't, don't get me wrong. I love Hercules. It's definitely one of my favorite of the 90s Disney movies, but I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. But he puts the glad and gladiator. Yeah. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> I don't know if that's like a good argument, but like, clearly he's better. He put the glad and gladiator. <laughs> but those were your Disney releases of the year. And I specifically because we're doing a musical, I kind of wanted to look at the pop charts and really highlight a few, a few big names that, you, you know, you might recognize from this movie. Because this was the like 1997, late 90s period where the pop charts were all over the place. Like, Tub Thumpin' was tearing it up on the charts at the time. And... I wanted to look at both Brandy and Whitney Houston's careers at this time. And okay. um, they're both doing fine for themselves. Whitney wasn't really releasing albums, per se, but she was doing soundtracks. Um, the Preacher's Wife had just came out the year before and did pretty well for her. But following the release of this, they both had massive success. Like, I'm talking... 10 million albums selling albums that were released, like, in the way of Brandy's Never Say Never. That's a great album. Yeah. So I, I want to say that this, like, kind of relaunched Whitney back into making an album, like, the following year for the first time in, like, eight proper years and, like, took Brandy to, like, her highest height as a recording artist. And, yeah, 60 million people watching your musical, that, that's going to put you in that, in that, that limelight, right? I can't help but notice that those have to be connected, right? I would say, yeah. I mean, because this musical, I think, introduced a lot of audiences that up until this point probably were not super familiar with Brandy, to say the least. I I feel like Whitney's omnipresent. Like, you just, everybody knows Whitney. But Whitney had, like, some difficult times in the 90s. That's true. She did have some, she did go through that rough patch. Yeah. Um, but I think this might have been a great gateway for a lot of people to Brandy, and by a lot of people, I mean white people. Yeah. Because I don't think that white people were, like, watching Moesha. I mean, I did, but um, <laughs> I feel like there was like a, a lot of white people that were not watching Moesha or really listening to Brandy, but they will sure as shit tune in for Walt Disney's Cinderella. 
Yeah. That's yeah. brand recognition they can get behind. Yeah. Well, I guess Rogers and Hammerstein Cinderella as presented by the Disney Corporation. Yes. But that's, we're getting into semantics there. Um, so let's start off the way that we do with all of our episodes and let's break down our, our leading characters. So Vengeance, tell me, how do you feel about Brandy's performance as Cinderella? Oh, so that's a tough one because I, I just rewatched it again about a week ago after watching it about the month before and the month before that and every opportunity that I kind of can. <laughs> And I, I watched it with a more critical eye this mm-hmm. past time, and she's fine. I, I, I was not blown away by her acting. Her voice was very soft and sweet, but mm-hmm. as far as, like, looking at it as, like, a from a theater perspective, like, the acting is very minimal, <laughs> mm-hmm. and the, the voice is nice, but when you compare it to, like, um... Bernadette Peters or anything like that. It's like, ooh, there's there's a different standard there. But I thought she did fine for mm-hmm. what it was. I was not blown away by her acting. Um, but what she brought to the role was she was a very sweet, very subdued role, which I thought was kind of a nice way to see it. There wasn't like a lot of spunk and like excitement to the Cinderella, but I liked it was just, you know, she was average, and I kind of liked that as well. Like, I didn't feel like she was this character I couldn't relate to, which mm-hmm. was kind of nice at the same time. So it, it worked for what I needed it to be, but from a critical eye, eh. And the dearest love in all the world is waiting somewhere for me. Is waiting somewhere, somewhere. Do you recall how you felt about this presentation when you were younger? I'd say like before you got into theater and being able to look critically. Like, do you remember how you, this impacted you when you were younger? Oh my God. Yes. Um, I, re- I watched it with my mom and it was the first time that I had seen a world that I looked like me, that I felt I could be a part of, because at that time in the 90s, you had shows with white families and you had shows with black families, and you really didn't see a lot of, or any, I can't think of, like interracial couples that were established, like family lines that you were following. So this was the mm-hmm. first time that I saw a black mother and a white father and they had you know an east asian son and bernadette peters had a black daughter and no one talked about it it wasn't Mm -hmm. weird the race wasn't a factor and it was like this is incredible and i remember going to school the next day and talking about black cinderella and apparently at my private lutheran school this was not required viewing (laughs) for the rest of the families that went to school there because all of my friends were like Cinderella's not black. What are you talking about? And they had me convinced that it was a fever dream. Like for years, I I thought that I dreamt this magical world where Whitney Houston was a fairy godmother. And then I was walking through a store and I saw that it was on VHS. I was like, it's real. It's real. This was not in my head. (laughs) But it it was really the, the first time I remember just feeling recognized in pop culture. And it really... 
Because you, uh, you're told all the time, like, you can be a princess, you can do it. But to see it was like, oh, I can be. That's really cool. So it was definitely, it was probably one of the most important films I think I saw at a very, at a younger age. Aw, I love that. And I, I really like that you're acknowledging that aspect of representation of that when you're being fed the messaging of like, you can do it, you can be whatever you dream of. It's a lot different when you can see that. It makes it tangible, you know? Mm-hmm. Harmony, how about you? How do you feel about Brandy's Cinderella? Um... Yeah, she's fine. Here's the thing. I don't think Brandy's doing a bad job. I think Cinderella as a character is just kind of boring because she's supposed to be very plain. She's supposed to be very, uh, I guess, like wistful and dreamy. So Mm -hmm. that's why she's just fantasizing about all of the lives she could have. And I'm like, okay, I get that. But yeah, no, she's okay. There is definitely like a, uh, a very soft sweetness to like Brandy's specific raspy voice in this that I think is just really nice. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I think she's she's better than, like, animated Cinderella, who I think is the most wonderbred of wonderbred. Like, she is so plain and blah. But this movie kind of corrects on a lot of, like, the classic Disney Cinderella tropes in a lot of ways. And I think that Cinderella just being a little bit more interesting. Like, there's what is the line of um, when they first meet her and the prince in, like, the market – and he goes, oh, I would treat you like a princess. And she goes, yeah, I just want to be treated like a person. And then that like flips later where he's like, I don't want to be treated like a prince. Maybe treat me like a person. But he doesn't say that. But that's totally what he's implying. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm like, oh, I like the exploration of that as an element, you know, because teens are just teens. So the script for this version was modified to sort of fit a little bit more of a modern retelling. And... What I find really interesting is when this came out, despite its incredible popularity and people loving this movie and everybody tuning in for it, uh, critics were not super thrilled on it. So there's an article from the Guam Daily Post uh, that says, critics ridiculed Brandy Cinderella and its lasting legacy is a lesson to Hollywood. And in this article, they say, Just before Cinderella premiered in 1997, major outlets published their critics' disenchanted reviews. Cinderella's glass slippers are far too big for Brandy to fill, wrote the Chicago Tribune. To put it bluntly, the girl can't act. Variety described Whitney Houston's fairy godmother as a frightening caricature, one certain to send the kids scurrying into mom's lap. And the New York Times called it a cobbled together Cinderella for the moment not the ages. Wow. (laughs) What? And I'm curious how you, Ventus, feel about hearing that that's what critics had to say about this upon release. Oh, man. That, ugh, gosh. That, I mean, they are kind of right about Brandy. Her acting was not great, but I loved Whitney Houston's fairy godmother. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. I would be terrified if some, like, old white lady showed up in my house waving a wand. (laughs) Whitney Houston showing up? I would be so excited. And I love her interpretation, um, because I think she was a producer on this as well. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, Of the fairy godmother. And I like that she didn't just come down and make her dreams come true. She was like, yes, you know, you can want these things, but you have to go after them yourself. I can't 
change who you are. I can maybe adjust your circumstances, but it's all up to you. And I loved that message that you mm-hmm. still have to work hard, hard to achieve your dreams. And I don't understand how someone could watch that production as a whole and be like, oh, it was thrown together. The costumes alone, that could, I could do an entire documentary like in my mind about those costumes because the, it's such a magical, vibrant world that they created that I'm like, how did... Where did they build this entire kingdom? Like, in me, my mind, it's not a set. They built a kingdom. They built a castle. Uh-huh. It's real. <laughs> it's amazing that, like, people saw that and were like, oh, everyone's going to forget about this. And it's like, oh, 90s kids will never forget this. And we didn't. <laughs> 90s kids remember. <laughs> hey there, prom party. This week's episode is sponsored by The Pickety Witch. The Pickety Witch is a weekly newsletter hitting an intersection between pop culture and social change. With everything going on in the world, it can be hard to know where to start or how we can help. Meanwhile, the art we use to heal, empower, and even distract ourselves is more important than ever. The newsletter is a combination of the two, providing links and direction on how to take action, as well as discussions around trending pop culture. We'll share our favorite conversations happening around the web, songs that are keeping us strong, and maybe even the off self-care and beauty tip. You can find The Pickety Witch on Patreon. Oh my god, like I really love like the aesthetic of this movie. The house that Brandy and like her stepsisters and her stepmother all live in. Historically, that should be a very plain house. It should probably be a lot of beiges and like earthy tones, but it's like, no, wall-to-wall color. Everything looks great. They have stained glass walls and there's peacocks over the door. And it's just like, give me something interesting to look at. Like, that's what a stage production should be, right? Like, make it a spectacle. And the costumes match that. I was just gushing over them the whole like 30, 40 minutes into the movie, and BJ just goes, wait till you see what they wear at the ball. And I was like, oh, I'm so excited. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, these costumes are so larger than life, and there's so much storytelling being told with just the colors of these costumes. I mean, they go to the ball, and almost everyone is wearing different shades of, like, royal blues and and purple-y tones. And then Brandy shows up in this, like, baby blue, borderline, like, white gown, and her sisters are dressed like lampshades in, like, pink (laughs) and blue and green and just very obnoxious and... It really tells that story of like, here's the two stepsisters that are just walking cartoons and they are fantastic. I like love them. such good physical comedy is going on between the stepsisters. And then similarly with Bernadette Peters, who also has like just this gigantic headpiece going on with her already like gigantic hair. Like there's just so much goodness going on. And then you also see at the at the opening when they're all in kind of the town square. And it looks very much like uh, like that scene in Beauty and the Beast to me. Mm-hmm. Like it looks like, you know, bonjour a little bit. But there are people in like giant green top hats and just bright orange jackets. And everything just feels lively and fun. And it immediately transports you into that world. And you buy into everything that's happening mm-hmm. because of the, the set design and because of these costumes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think one of my favorite parts is at the end, the montage when he's putting the shoe on all the women and there goes down like a line of feet. And all I think is, where did you get those tights? Where did you (laughs) find all, like everyone has their own unique printed tights. And that I think is what is incredible is the costumes are all unique. There's not really a lot of things that you see duplicated 
Mm-hmm. Even when you have like the bakers, they're all wearing something similar, but everyone is their own character. And I'm like, I see where your budget went. And that is amazing. And because they created a fantasy world that didn't look like a Disney movie that we had seen of Cinderella or anything else, it was easier to buy into the fact that uh, like everything was its own fantasy. You couldn't compare it to anything else because in this world, this can happen because this is so unique. And I that the costumes really played into that and helped bring it to life. And I, I can go on for just hours about the costumes alone. So something that we briefly touched on in moving kind of down the line of our characters, uh, what do you make of the the step family? Ventus, how do you feel about them? Oh, man. They are... I love them. I absolutely love them. I... I think the sisters are absolutely hilarious. Like, you can tell that they have just been completely brainwashed by their mother (laughs) to behave this way. You can tell that the mother doesn't really even like them that much like right (laughs) she knows her daughters are not like top tier kid material and she's like desperately trying to get them i think she's has a plan just to get them out of her house because she realizes (laughs) they're gonna live with her forever and that's why she's like no you need to marry this prince i need you out of this house now but i love (laughs) that i don't think i've ever seen this in any version of cinderella but at the end, when they come back from the ball and Cinderella is singing about what she imagines it must have been like, they have that moment where the sisters are like dancing and singing with her. And it felt so beautiful. You can tell that moment when the mom wasn't interrupting and throwing hate into it that I was like, they could have actually been like a pretty decent, happy family if that factor wasn't there. And I thought that was kind of cool to show that moment mm-hmm. of connection and tear down instead of just making them like an evil stereotype. They kind of gave some more depth as to why they behave this way. Like I, it, when Whitney Houston tells her, like, do you not understand that they're jealous of you? You know, it's like, oh, that makes sense why they're mean. They're not just jerks. Like there is a jealous aspect. They realize that she is a very kind, beautiful hearted person and her daughters laugh uncontrollably for no reason. And, you know, it's like, it's like, I love that they kind of built that relationship up and gave it some depth and explanation. Same. I, uh, I love the absolute excess of camp that exists from these three characters. It is amazing. And not, I can't say that it's the best song, but maybe my favorite song on the soundtrack is the one that they have at the ball with the two stepsisters where they're basically just trying to like trash Cinderella but they're doing it by just complimenting her. Like, <laughs> oh, how could anybody possibly want to be with someone who's just perfect and nice? Why can't they go for, like, people who suck like us? <laughs> like, I love that as an element for their characters. Her neck is no longer than a They are so much fun and like so over the top. But at the same time, you have someone like Bernadette Peters as the wicked stepmother. And I love her performance so much more than like the animated version as an example, because that version, like she is like a caricature of evil. She is stroking a cat, like clouded in (laughs) shadows. She is the most stereotypical She's like Dr. Claw. Yes, she is like so like (laughs) ominous and evil. And you think, oh, well, Bernadette Peters as a stepmother, she's just kind of like a bumbling fool. 
But then after they have that song about like fantasizing about what the ball was like, you know, fantasizing in quotes. And she has this speech that she gives Cinderella that is so mean. It is meaner than anything that exists in like the other versions of this I've seen. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, no, you're actually a bad person. You're clumsy and you're kind of a doofus, but you're legitimately a very bad person and you want to hurt her. Mm -hmm. Is that when she goes like your common Cinderella, like your mother was like that whole speech? Yes. 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 It's so mean. Oh, yeah. That one. That one struck a chord. I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, I'm going to fight her. (laughs) <laughs> and like that's the thing is i love her for so much of the movie and then it happens and, and i go yeah i don't like you anymore i'm mad at you yeah and there's definitely some there's some deep-seated anger that she has going on in there because obviously she remarried cinderella's dad at some point and obviously could not stack up to Cinderella's mom, which is why she's got to like pull that punch and dig at mom. Uh But then at the same time, she recognizes that her daughters, Minerva and Calliope are just (laughs) messes of humans. Uh. And I love them so much. Like VN Cox, who plays Calliope is a, she's a Broadway person. She also is a former ballet dancer. So that's why she has a lot of this physical comedy with all of her limbs, which I love. And then uh, Natalie DeSalle Reed, also a Broadway person, but does a lot of physical comedy. So that's why we're getting like the scratching and the eyelashes. And the two of them are really good at controlling their, their vocal comedy and playing a lot with that, which just brilliant. But with those being her daughters, there's obviously some really deep resentment that she has because Cinderella is beautiful and kind and compassionate and, effortlessly elegant and she's clearly super fucking bitter about it (laughs) (laughs) so sorry bernadette that that's how things went maybe if you were a better mom then your kids wouldn't be such messes i also love that she has her own agenda at the ball she's like i'm gonna get myself a man like she started going to like the help essentially of the castle i mean like (laughs) maybe i can get out if my daughters can't, maybe I can put myself in. Like, yeah, trying to, <laughs> trying to hit on Lionel, which is Jason Alexander with a goatee. Oh, God, I love him so much in this movie. And, okay, so speaking of Jason Alexander, like, I was just commenting on this cast because I love the cast of this movie so much. And something you kept saying is, oh, yeah, they have a massive theater background. They do. And it's just going across. It's like everyone in this has done, like, musicals or theater at some point, basically. That's wild. Yeah, Jason Alexander was in one of the original casts of Merrily We Roll Along, which is a thing a lot of people don't know. He was also in The Odd Couple, and uh, he was in a rendition of The Producers in the early 2000s. Like, Jason Alexander is a theater boy, but everyone's just like, ah, Seinfeld! And it's like, no, 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 there's there's more to him here. Well, especially wild, because Seinfeld was still on the air at the time of this. Also true. And I think that the the casting of this is so smart for a variety of reasons. And I think we can kind of dive into the complexities of it. But for the most part, you have like Victor Garber and Whoopi Goldberg and Jason Alexander and Bernadette Peters. And these are people with huge theater backgrounds, but have also become crossover successes. Mm-hmm. So these are people that, you know, middle America 
recognizes. They know who these people are. They may not know their backgrounds with musicals already, but they know who that is. So there Mm -hmm. are definitely people who are going to turn in to see Whoopi Goldberg be a queen. For sure, that's going to happen. And then you intercut that with, you know, someone like Brandy, who at the time is, you know, this budding pop superstar. You have Whitney Houston, who's a goddamn icon. Mm -hmm. And then you also have Paolo Montalban, who's playing the prince, who is, like aggressively and like unnecessarily handsome like how dare you <laughs> like, he has a smile that just lights up the like, room how fucking dare you like he turns and like reveals himself in that opening scene and smiles at cinderella and it's like shut up like go away like how dare you be this handsome but you know and that's somebody who's exclusively like a theater a theater guy like he's been in the king and i in like both <laughs> major male roles So it's just really, really well cast. They knew, like, where can we put star power? Where can we put, you know, Broadway professionals? Where can we put pop sensibilities? Like, it's just very smart, I think. Uh I agree. And, you know, because we have all these characters, we also have one of the best and, unfortunately, only examples of, like, race-blind casting. So, Ventus, I'm curious if you'd like to speak on that at all as somebody who's, you know, not white. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of... It's so tough because Cinderella is a character that in every almost every iteration I've seen except for this is always been white. And I think that... Um, I don't want to say that, you know, a lot of act, casting directors will not cast a black Cinderella. I think it just it's so easy to do it's what everyone expects and when you cast a black cinderella or a a black person in a lead that's traditionally white that becomes the conversation um Mm -hmm. and that's really tough especially cinderella there's nothing about this show that anything needs to be race specific but as soon as you cast a black this or a black that oh wow you're you're doing that and it's like it's just a show that anyone can sing it. Like, um, I, I forget the name of the woman, uh, the African-American woman who uh, took over playing Elsa on Broadway. And mm-hmm. it was like, she's just Elsa. She doesn't have to be black Elsa. She's Elsa. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. it's so, so she's not black Cinderella. It's just Cinderella. And seeing it done truly blindly in a way that, I mean, they could have easily just made the whole step family white. And Mm -hmm. had Sandy, or Sandy, gosh, Cinderella. (laughs) They could have had her be black and it would have been like, okay, we can see that, you know, that's not her mom. But the fact that they kept it so open and that we had the royal family had three different races who genetically in real life could not have produced a son that looked like (laughs) that. But that I, I think was what made it so special. Every kid across the globe could watch this movie pretty much, mm-hmm. and identify with it. I think the only, like, major race that wasn't represented was Hispanic, mm-hmm. if I'm correct. And that is astounding. And they weren't side characters. There weren't bit characters. They didn't say, hey, play up the blackness or anything like that. And I mm-hmm. love the fact that it was these performers, and they were performing as characters. They weren't having to do a black version of it. They didn't have to... I think the only, like, thing that I remember... uh kind of hinting at race was when the fairy godmother says, do you think they were like just dazzled by your pretty braids? Probably wouldn't have said that if Cinderella was white, but that's Mm -hmm. really the only thing that I think that they really had to change. I thought that was so cool. There was no talk about, well, it was so hard for Cinderella because she was black. And I was like, if there had been 
any of that or anything just targeting that. It would have ruined the whole experience. So the fact that it was truly blind and they made it about the production and the story, I think is what sets this apart. And I want to see more of that because it shouldn't be earth shaking if a black person is cast in a traditionally white lead when race has no factor in the show. And I think mm-hmm. making the whole world even more of a fantasy as opposed to being like, oh, a sleepy European town, because it felt more fantasy, you didn't have people coming in being like, well, technically Cinderella was based in this European town and they wouldn't have had black people. Like they couldn't say that because obviously this building had like, they had like Hobbit style buildings in like a <laughs> rainbow town. Like there was no way to get like, you know, truthful about what the races would have been. And I think it's just so incredible. And it was so important for kids like me across the planet to see this. I mean, actually, uh, her name is Ash Poodle, and she's German. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah, those arguments are so, they're just so maddening. And I know that we saw it recently with the announcement that Halle Bailey is going to play the Little Mermaid. Uh-huh. And, Ventress, I know that is something that you have a lot of feelings about. <laughs> what? No. I uh, <laughs> I try not to get into fights on Twitter, but I may have intentionally started a few over that one. Uh, I, I There was a lot of people were commenting like, but like she's from Denmark and she's our only princess. I'm like, and you have every other iteration of this movie to watch for your Denmark <laughs> heritage of living under the ocean, I guess. Like, I don't know. <laughs> and I, I, I remember my argument people, I'm like, she's a fish. She's a fish. It does not matter what. <laughs> like, your heritage is not going anywhere, I promise. That's international waters. It's not Denmark. <laughs> so going back to Cinderella, I am glad that you brought up the line where Fairy Godmother points out her pretty braids because I like that while they're definitely not being like, this is black Cinderella, they're also not whitewashing her. Like, mm-hmm. she has braids. Like, she has hair that white women... I'm not going to say could not because we've all seen white girls that go to Cancun for spring break. We know what they come back looking like. Um, Should not have hair like this. And the same thing goes when she has her updo. Like it's a stylish updo, but she still has her braids and she still has, you know, an ethnic hairstyle. And I know for me growing up, despite the fact that like I'm white, I grew up in, you know, an area with a lot of people of color. And I remember just thinking how beautiful that she was, but also at the same time recognizing like that's the kind of hair that my friend's older sisters wore to prom. And I thought that was (laughs) so cool. I don't know why I was like, that looks like that looks like her hair when she had prom and I like it. And I don't know. That's just like a little thing that really stuck out to me. I mean, really the only unfortunate design choice in anything in this movie is that because it's the late nineties, everybody has the worst eyebrows that they could possibly have. (laughs) Just small hairs fighting on for dear life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think every person of color, like their hair was some sort of natural, like no one had a relaxer. No one's Mm -hmm. hair had been straightened. And I thought to see that was wild because I my hair was doing all kinds of crazy things I I spent Sunday nights between my mom's legs taming everything down for the week so to see that there was braids and dreads and froze and they were done beautifully 
and elegantly and it was not portrayed as like a wild hairstyle but shown like the beauty of black hair it's Mm -hmm. things like that that you don't necessarily realize as a young kid you can't really articulate why it's important but then when you get older you're like oh yeah that that does make sense and just Mm -hmm. to show it for a lot of white people who don't get to see that showing it in a context of beauty without having to shine a spotlight at it and force them to look at it and making it natural that is something that's so important because as soon as you make it like about black hair people are going to check out but if you just show beauty in Mm -hmm. what it is you get people in there all sneaky and i love it (laughs) yeah you 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 portray it as like a Mm non-issue like this is this is just a matter of fact Mm -hmm. and that's great i love that (laughs) speaking of that um let's talk about the king and queen let's talk about Victor Garber and Whoopi Goldberg and like (laughs) I I am so obsessed with this sort of iteration of the king and queen because a lot of times those characters are presented like very stuffy or you know there's just this very I don't know deep inhale like air about them like a thing like Like, that it's sort of that or it's very much like but honey you need to find a princess like it's very much that kind of energy Mm -hmm. and we don't have that with these two like we have Whoopi who is clearly in charge like 100 <laughs> like victor garber is just sitting there trying to play chess and she's like waiting for a fainting couch like <laughs> get me my like, smelling salts <laughs> yes like but then she has this running gimmick where if she doesn't know what to say she like gasps a very high-pitched sound that sounds like she's about to start crying and uh-huh. it's so dramatic but i'm obsessed with it Christopher, darling, where have you been? Your father and I were just talking about you. Your mother was talking. I was listening. (laughs) All right, what's going on? Just playing a little get-together, nothing fancy, just family. Uh Uh-huh. And a few close friends. Uh Uh-huh. And all the eligible young women in the kingdom. Mother! We're only talking maybe four or five hundred at the most. Mother, you can't keep doing this to me. What? Max, what's he saying? He's saying he doesn't want to have another ball. No, he's not. So curious on the two of yours takes, whoever wants to go first. Oh man, I, they are probably my favorite, like, fantasy couple. I love the fact that Victor Garber is like, not, my wife needs the spotlight. I don't need to try and rule her. I know where my place <laughs> is. She's gonna have, I like how he's also just been married for so long, but he's like, unfazed. He's like, she's gonna do her thing. We'll talk about it after, like, the high-pitched noises and the fainting is done. Like, then he comes in <laughs> once all of that is done. And I love the fact that she is not shamed for being a woman in charge. There is no no one telling her to calm down or anything like that. She is who she is. And I like the fact that they showed um, a husband not trying to, like, limit his wife. And just mm-hmm. taking a step back and showing that beautiful relationship like even when they are at the ball together and he's like well if i was a younger man she's like what he's like well i'd be younger right and i'm like i love the fact that it was like (laughs) that you can tell that they've made jokes like that for years and it felt like there was like a real marriage there it didn't feel staged like you know i like the fact that it was like oh you can tell they're just in love and so Mm -hmm. like even when the prince says that like i want to be in love like the two of you were you believe it because they act like a couple that's been married, raised a kid, 
and they've done everything, you know, so that like those cute little like kisses and everything like, yeah, they're not doing that. They're cracking jokes at each other and like talking crap about Lionel. And I love seeing that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a real relationship because that's what we do constantly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You'll, we'll, we'll make fun of each other on Twitter all the time or you'll say something sweet and I'll be a smart ass and you'll go, hmm, <laughs> why do you have to be sassy? I think if I had any complaints about these two is just like I realize this movie is not about them, but I want more of them. Like, I want to see them on screen more. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Give me the spinoff of just Whoopi dramatically trying to get this ball in order. Can we have a sitcom? Just just <laughs> dust off, the, like, the stage sets and just kind of have them set in the castle and their shenanigans? <laughs> I would oh love my that. God. That'd be incredible. <laughs> yeah, I, I really love the two of them and I think that they're they're, I think they're perfectly cast too because Victor Garber despite the fact that he's you know the original Jesus in Godspell so like that's a very larger than life and like huge performance Mm -hmm. as he's gotten older he's been taking a lot of these roles that are like very subdued like the the one that most people probably recognize him from other than like being the dad on Alias but is the skeezy professor in Legally Blonde Mm -hmm. but it's very much this like Hi, I'm Victor Garber, and this is my job today. This is how I'm going to talk. (laughs) And it works so well in this world because Whoopi is so over the top and being dramatic that it's a really, really nice balance. I think if they were both at an 11, it would be a little bit too much. But because they're they're balancing each other very nicely, it just fits so well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's what you get when you put Broadway theater people together because you know, doing theater, not everyone can be the star in every moment. So you have Mm -hmm. to learn when someone else is going to shine and you know, you're going to have your moment. You know, there's not that battle for superstardom because even in though his performance is so subdued, it's still fantastic and you're still drawn to him. But like, just like you said, if he was coming at it with the same energy, it would have been like, all right, that's, that's a little bit much, but that's what you get when you cast really talented people in these Mm -hmm. kinds of performances, you get that kind of gold connection. And I love it. So something I wanted to bring up that is going to elicit something else that I know is so deeply ingrained in your heart. Uh Oh, (laughs) is that one of the, the main criticisms a lot of critics had when this came out is they found the, while like groundbreaking, uh, a lot of critics found the racially diverse casting uh to be confusing which that's just them being dumb Mm -hmm. but they found the change of cinderella not being like this damsel waiting for the prince but instead being somebody that's like participating in her own like strength um to be a negative in their eyes and I don't know if that reminds you mm-hmm. of another classic story turned mm-hmm. musical mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. updated and changed. But, you know, just the floor <laughs> is yours, Ventus. Oh, my God. Oh, I'm going to need a moment. <laughs> <laughs> that is one of the most infuriating things. And was that review written by a man? A white one at that. Oh, of course mm. it was. There is something that I apparently it's a trend that if a role is given to a black person now and they are not a damsel, it's like, whoa, 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 this is not what I signed up for. And there's these roles that people expect to be these meet people. They want, I think men specifically love Cinderella 
because Cinderella is boring and she idolizes the prince. She wants to be with him. And it's all about her finding the guy. The guy doesn't have mm-hmm. to do anything. You know, this Cinderella, she's like, um, I want to be treated like a person. And like that alone is like baffling. Like, yes, mm-hmm. you have to treat someone like a person. Not every woman is some dainty yes, dear, you know, bow when I see you kind of thing. So when you see that, that can be a little jarring, especially if that's not what you want and you like that idea of a meek woman that you can take away and put in your castle and, you know, she's going to rely on you for everything. And this Cinderella, like, I would love to see them 10 years from now. Like, Cinderella is not going to rely on the prince for anything. Like, she's going to have her Mm -hmm. own side income. If he leaves her, she's going to be like, I'll be fine. Like, that's that kind of Cinderella. (laughs) And I think for a lot of men, that can be alarming because that's not what they're raised to to see. They are raised that they should have a house. They should bring a woman into that house and that woman should have and raise their children. So when you see that change come through, that can be alarming. And we see that the same article, I believe you were talking about King Kong on Broadway, which I have absolutely no (laughs) thoughts about. Um. (laughs) Uh, Yes, it was one of those moments where we had already asked you to do to do this episode. And I was reading this article about like how many critics disliked the change of making Cinderella, you know, not this, you know, lady in wait. And going, oh, so it's exactly what happened with King Kong the Musical. Mm-hmm. That just is going to have some words. Uh. If you want to go on, if you want to take this time to go on your King Kong rant, you're more than welcome to. I, I welcome w- this energy. <laughs> <laughs> I will try and not go on the full rant because that's hours long. Um, but yeah, that was, for those of you who probably do not know, uh, King Kong was mounted as a Broadway production. It was originated in Australia, brought over to the States. Um, I think it was 2019 and 20-ish is when it, it ran. Uh, ran for well over 300 performances. Never got a cast recording, which is absolutely criminal. Won three Tony Awards, um, I believe, for the production. They even had to create a Tony Award for the musical because they had a two-ton gorilla puppet that's operated by 10 people on stage, four people in a booth, as well as a huge mechanism above the stage. They created a Tony Award, but they basically said... You made a cool ass monkey. Here's an uh, award for it. And it's so cool. <laughs> it's so cool. And like the musical itself, it's a little clunky. The writing is um, pretty simplistic. But overall, the show has a lot of fantastic choreography. It has a great message. And they, when it mounted it in the States, they cast an African American woman as Anne Darrow. And the reviews of it, they absolutely shredded this musical. Like, it was critically just torn apart. Audiences really, really liked it. If you read, like, the comments on the reviews by audience members, they're like, what show did you watch? But Mm -hmm. I think, was it the New York Times article that I think so, it's that one. Yeah, they basically, in their own way of phrasing it, had a very big problem that they... Uh, made her black and made her a strong independent woman like I forget Mm -hmm, their exact like way of kind of not saying that while still saying it but you could tell that once they saw her on there they had kind of checked out from whatever else the production was going to bring to the table because Anne Darrow was not just the screaming woman who needed someone to rescue her she has a whole number about how that's not who she is (laughs) um 
And but men want to be the savior and the hero, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But when you only want women to be people who have to be saved, that's when it becomes problematic. So when Cinderella no longer needs to be saved, then that is when they're like, well, what? Am, where is my role in this story? And it's like, well, it's not about you. I mean, that was the whole thing that Whitney Houston said, like, why don't you leave? And yeah. You see Cinderella realizing, oh. I can do that. It's like, we don't even need the prince. Like this musical could have ended with Whitney Houston being like, girl, get out of your house. The end. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like the prince is not needed. And so when you start kind of tearing down those mentalities that men have been told for years that, you know, women need them to take them out from their parents' house and now make them a wife and a, a part of society, you're undoing generations of what men have been taught. And so it can be very jarring. So I'm not surprised that people had that reaction. I hate that people are still having that reaction, you know, today to seeing Mm -hmm. that. Right. (laughs) But I think that it's becoming less so. We are starting to see men in those quote-unquote non-traditional roles than they have been seen in the past. But this was a Cinderella who didn't need a prince. And for men, that was a hard thing to grasp, unfortunately, I think a lot of the time. So I'm not surprised at all that that was the reaction. That is my slim down King Kong rant. There is so much more I could have gone into. <laughs> uh, so, so two things. One, I love that the writing allows her to really express that she could do anything. She's not specifically looking for a prince in Cinderella because she's got any number of dreams. She really just kind of wants to be anywhere else and doesn't realize at first that that's an option. And like, I think that's just good writing. And two, um, Ventus, your birthday last year is legitimately my favorite birthday that I've ever <laughs> gone to. Uh, would you like to tell people what you did? Yes. Um, for legal purposes, this is a joke. And I totally didn't do this. But <laughs> <laughs> um, so basically, uh, King Kong is my favorite Broadway musical. There is no cast recording. There is no official released video production of it. And pretty much the company is like letting this just die. It's the same company that put on Moulin Rouge. So they have bigger fish to fry at the moment. Uh But there's just really no way for anyone to experience it. And I had been talking about it nonstop. And so one day I happened to go on YouTube and um, some very naughty person brought cameras into the show and bootlegged the entire production of King Kong. (laughs) There are camera angles. They interspliced it with as much professional footage that they could find from like promo videos. But it's the full show. And to my knowledge, it is like the only way to see or hear the show. So I, when I saw it on YouTube, I immediately like ripped the video off. And I was like, I'm saving this forever for me. And I had wanted all of my friends to see it. Um, So what we did was we drove to a parking lot, projected it on the side of a building in the middle of a rainstorm and funneled the sound into the radios of people's cars. And so they got to watch King Kong the way it was never meant to be seen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it was really cool. And uh, the... Everyone there had been involved in theater for years and years and years, pretty much. So they came at it from a theater eye and having me talk about it for a year and a half, they were not expecting much. But to hear everyone at the end go, oh, yeah, that wasn't that like that wasn't bad. That was actually way better than we thought it was going to be. It was just it made my heart 
so warm. <laughs> and I am on this one woman goal to make the world know about King Kong. And I want them to either record a cast recording. And I refuse to believe that they haven't recorded everything because every show records something. So I know it's out there. It's in a vault somewhere and I'm going to find it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I have, I think in my house, I have two different subway posters that are massive. One of them's on my wall. I have um, two coffee mugs from King Kong. I have three t-shirts. I have a hoodie. <laughs> I have um, another like thermal cup. Like I, I go on eBay once a week and I just make sure that I have all of the collectibles that are out there. <laughs> uh, and like you went so all out for this hypothetical event that didn't actually happen, yeah. but probably possibly happened. There was like gorilla balloons and everyone mm. got their own like special, like quarantined bag of popcorn and stuff. With, yes. Like, There's like, a cake oh my topper God. with like a little gorilla yes. on it too. <laughs> oh my God. It was so great and so perfect, especially cause it was last year and like, we hadn't seen people in so long yeah. and we still got to. And like, there was like production issues where like the rain was being a problem and I'm just watching people run around to just keep the show going in the middle of the rain. And it was so perfect. Yeah. The rain <laughs> led up, I think about an hour in, which was nice, but we were definitely, I was just like, I, I, Pat, I will, I will buy you a new projector. I don't care. I will, I'm, I'm making this happen, but it was, it was so special. I mean, yeah, it was my birthday and like I love my birthday every year. I try to do something fun. But the fact that it was during quarantine and I got to see friends I hadn't seen in a long time and to share something that I love so much that I wasn't ever going to be able to share with everyone. Like mm -hmm. to, to understand how much I love this musical, my husband and I were going to do a trip to New York as like our delayed honeymoon. And they had announced that um, after we had planned the weekend that we were going to go, they had announced that they were closing King Kong like a month before that. So we replanned everything and I dragged him to New York to, basically <laughs> for our honeymoon to make him see King Kong. And I was like, "You're if you're going to be married to me, this has, <laughs> you have to, you got to see this. <laughs> uh. I just love that this is, something that you're so passionate about because I really do think that based on the, the critics response to this, there is that direct through line between having Brandy as Cinderella all the way up to, you know, having a black and Like it's, there is that connective line and you're absolutely right that it's, it's pretty fucked that like <laughs> the critics are making the exact same criticisms and it's been, you know, 20 years, 20 years, getting closer to like 25. Like that's, mm -hmm. that's a problem. But now that, you know, the world knows that you, you do know your shit in terms of, you know, what makes for a good musical. Uh, <laughs> Everyone has heard the gospel of King Kong and have been given a further, bigger stage to spread that. Yeah. Uh, but let's, let's talk about the actual music of Cinderella, because I think, what may have confused people at first as well is when you see Disney and Cinderella, your brain goes to like bippity boppity boop and that kind of shit. <laughs> mm -hmm. And this, it's not the same music cause it's Rogers and Hammerstein. Mm -hmm. So how do y'all feel about the music? I love uh, there's, it. There's genres of, of musicals and like a Disney musical is very removed from like a classic musical, which is very different from any other genre of musical theater. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I like love classic musicals, 
But I love the music in this movie, specifically in the movie, where I'm like, I don't think I'm going to go out of my way to listen to any of these songs. But if I'm watching the movie, I'm like, yeah, I'm all in. I'm so into all of this right now, especially uh, Whitney's song about It's Impossible. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And we get to the credits and I'm like, man, the only thing this movie did wrong is they didn't give Whitney a second song. And then like a fairy (laughs) godmother, I am blessed with a second Whitney Houston song. Oh, yeah. I, I, cause I had never heard the Rodgers and Hammerstein's version before, which is, again, why I thought I fever-dreamed this movie, because <laughs> it wasn't, like, the Cinderella music. And I remember when it first started, I was like, oh, this is different, but I really like it. And it wasn't until years and years later, I think I was, like, out of high school before I was like, wait, this is a whole, like, Rodgers and Hammerstein's didn't write this for Disney in 1997, Hold on. So I got really excited. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm going to listen to the soundtrack for the first time. And I started playing it. And I was like, huh, the original show is really white. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, this is really boring. So I'm the same. Like, I love, I mean, it's not a bad show. It's definitely like the music is fine. It's classic theater. But mm-hmm. like, if I'm going to listen to this, like this version of Cinderella, I'm listening to this version of Cinderella. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't heard the original, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to have the same takeaway as yeah, you. Yeah, that's I'm very much of that. And when this dropped on Disney Plus, there were a ton of like retrospective articles that came out because, you know, that's just what happens. Uh-huh. And R. Eric Thomas wrote for L.com, like Elmagazine.com, about the music. And specifically, I want to highlight what they had to say about Whitney because I just, I love it. Where it says, as good as Brandy is, this movie belongs to Whitney Houston. Whitney is the ultimate diva fairy godmother. From the moment she graces the screen, she is all confident gestures and spirited lines. She owns this part. She is the warmth and cheekiness of Claire Huxtable and the self-possession of Glinda. She is perfect. What is happening here? Whitney is happening here. It's easy to forget how effortlessly funny she was because after years of memification, you may also have forgotten how classy she was. Whitney was regal. She was a queen. And it is never more apparent than in this performance. Mm. I and love that. A diva, a diva really is the best way to describe this, but in the best way possible. Yeah, not mm. in like the shitty, I'm going to throw a cell phone at you yeah. type of diva. But I love that they bring up the fact that, especially since Whitney has since passed, there are a lot of like really unfunny and really gross jokes that have been made at her expense uh-huh. based on her history of, you know, substance abuse, her sexuality, like all Bobby of that, Brown. Bobby Brown, it said like all of that. And we forget that like Whitney Houston is a goddess. Yes. And yeah. I really do agree that I think that this performance as the fairy godmother and in particular, the way that she sings in this movie is like pure Whitney. Like mm-hmm. everything about it is pure Whitney. You've got like these effortless vocal ranges and just this mixed belt that like she doesn't even have to move. It just changes in her body. Whereas like <laughs> most people who have to mix belt like that have to like change their like their whole body changes uh-huh. when they when they shift. And Whitney just like it's just there and it's beautiful. Uh, like I think of other people who like can belt like this, like a Christina Aguilera and this is no slight against Christina, but when she sings and like tries to do a Whitney Houston like style run or something, it sounds like work. Like she's trying, mm-hmm. like it's, it, she's, she's, she's putting a lot of effort into it. 
Whitney is just like, it's like ice skating. She glides. It's yeah. so graceful and perfect. <laughs> There's a reason why her version of the national anthem is the version. Like, literally at Cedar mm-hmm. Point up here at 9 a.m., that is the version that they play for the park <laughs> is Whitney Houston's. When you listen to it, because I... My biggest thing about the National Anthem is, like, everyone tries to make it their thing, and they go over Mm -hmm. the top with it, and Whitney just said, I'm going to come out here and just sing the best damn anthem, and she doesn't do anything crazy. She sings it as herself, and it's so effortlessly amazing that every other artist since has just been trying to get, like, an iota of that magic in their anthem, and it's that Mm -hmm. was who she was. Her vocals were so incredible because all she did was focus on making her voice beautiful. And in those Mm -hmm. moments, she didn't worry about having like doing a crazy amount of runs or always having to hit these higher notes. She was like, I'm going to sing this in the best possible way. And she did. And her voice was so smooth and it was beautiful. And so getting to see her, you know, in the nineties in a gold shimmery floor length gown that just made her, it showed on the outside what we knew was already there, but we kind of had started to forget. And I love, love, love that. Because I look at her and I'm just like, help me. Come to my life. <laughs> Fix me. <laughs> there, there are a few things in my life that give me more of like the pure euphoria of existing as a person than like a Whitney Houston key change. Mm. Oh my gosh, yeah. Like uh. Whitney Houston key changes, like they bring their own emotional response because they're just so incredible. Like that moment hits and I turn into Whoopi Goldberg just being so dramatic, like hand on the forehead, just like, oh! <laughs> <laughs> And I would say vocally, because we talked a little bit about Brandy, and I do think that she's doing a lot of really sweet work in this. But I don't want to sleep on Bernadette Peters' mm. like evil stepmother anthem, mm-hmm. because she's another one, while her voice, I don't think, brings that same kind of just chutzpah as like Whitney Houston. Bernadette Peters' voice also needs to be like, kept in a vault and studied because it's incredible. Yeah. I know her best as a Rita from Animaniacs. And (laughs) like, I grew up listening to her sing and it's just like, yeah, no, you like there's fullness and like a very specific, I don't, I don't don't know, swagger to like how she sings. It's Mm -hmm. very character-y and I love it. Yeah, Yeah. I think that's a great way to put it. But the character acting in this, it goes to the stepsisters. Mm Mm-hmm. Definitely. Oh my gosh. When they are singing about like what happened at the ball afterwards and like, you know, Brandy's doing this beautiful dreamy, like, I bet this happened. And they're going with her and they're like, I bet it happened too. (laughs) It's just like the shrillest, like most obnoxious vocalization. And that's also what makes this movie so good is that the character work doesn't just stop when the music starts Mm -hmm. because if there's one thing that I can say, it like honestly, it reminds me a lot of Little Shop, where you have this character voice for Audrey, 
that like, yeah, it does have to drop out when she's belting her face off because mm-hmm. it's impossible to belt like that. But like trying to incorporate that character voice so that the the authenticity of the character doesn't get lost. Yeah. And I think this movie does a really, really good job at doing that. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a problem that I think a lot of Disney movies in particular have where a lot of characters have completely different singing voices from speaking voices. And this movie doesn't do that because they actually cast people who can sing. Even Jason Alexander, who's like, you know, he's talk singing. He still sings in this. Yeah, that is, I want to see more of that. And I that was one lesson that I wish we had seen in like every other movie musical that's come out in the last 10 years. It's like, like cats. You can, uh, don't, that, that's a whole other <laughs> conversation. But like, there's a difference between casting an actor who can carry a tune and casting a singer, a performer who can also act. Like, mm-hmm. there's a reason why every time they put out a movie musical and it's like, yes, you cast this actor who p- can sing a really good karaoke song in this role and now people are crapping on you in the reviews. It's like, yeah, they sounded terrible because then in the background roles, you put all these incredible actors. I remember one of the moments that I was, I got so angry, I actually had to walk out of the, the room. It was the... Tony Awards, I believe, after the Les Mis movie came out, and oh, yeah. I, uh, that's, I can go off on that, but I remember they had the movie cast come out, and they were singing, like, One Day More, I believe, so mm-hmm. Russell Crowe came out, did his Russell Crowness, and behind him was a um, Broadway actor, uh, Ramin Karamloo, who has literally played the Phantom, he's played Angeras, like, this guy, his voice is incredible, and I'm like, he is standing behind Russell Crowe right now, giving him supporting vocals. What? <laughs> and like, see. so I wish I want them to watch Cinderella and be like, see, see how this works. Do that. Do that. <laughs> uh, but, but for real, look, the thing with Russell Crowe is, and this is where like the problem is when it comes to casting movie musicals is as a singer, I don't think Russell Crowe's terrible. He's just wildly miscast in that movie because mm. he's like a rootsy almost like rock style singer like he's more of like a like a Bruce Springsteen or something than a musical theater singer and so he's the worst person you could <laughs> cast for that kind of a like of a role to sing those kinds of songs yeah and it shows especially like doing all the takes live did not help for Les Mis in particular no it did no. not no <laughs> I think if I'm gonna say say a bold statement here I think the closest we've gotten in what Cinderella did right mm-hmm. in another property is the animated series Central Park. Oh, Central Park! That great. is the closest we've gotten because Central Park, um, it's the animation design and everything comes from the same team as Bob's Burgers, but it is run by you know Josh Gad and. Uh, Leslie Adam Jr. and Katherine Hahn and Titus Burgess and Kristen Bell and these, you know, there's so many random people that show up as well. Just Stanley to do, Tucci. Yeah, Stanley as Tucci. As an old woman. And uh, David Diggs is also playing an old woman. And you have these, you have these performers who all have done like theater work at some point who have become crossover artists for, you know, any number of reasons and they know how to do this. They mm-hmm. know how to play these characters. They know how to incorporate musicality into their character work. And it really shows. Like, it, 
I understand why like Disney or any musicals have to like cast big name celebrities and roles. I, I uh-huh. get it. I, I understand the, the business side of it. But it doesn't mean that it's going to be good. Uh-huh. And I think that Cinderella and Central Park both understand, like, let's play to our strengths here and let's highlight the people who are most deserving. Like, I was thinking about, like, Prince Charming, right? Because he, for the most part, hasn't done anything really outside of this and theater. Like, uh-huh. he's not somebody who went on to do a bunch of TV. And I keep thinking, like, it, who else would I have wanted in that role and I don't want anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, he did it. And I think one thing that was so I loved about his prince is he at first kind of comes in and tries to play that stereotypical prince riding in on a white horse. And Randy's like, mm-hmm. none of that in this house. Like, and so, <laughs> and I love that you just got to see him as like a guy. He, you know, and I like the fact that it's a very small conversation that he has with uh, Jason Alexander's Lionel, he's like, explain something to me. You have money, power, women throwing themselves at you, and you're unhappy. And I love how he's like, yeah, but I'm not my own person. And I love the fact that they had that brief conversation of showing that, like, yeah, someone who does have everything is still lacking something. And I like that they Mm -hmm. gave that character that little bit of a story also instead of just making him like hello cinderella i am the prince you know <laughs> you know and i i like that they did that and they tried to kind of round out these characters and he brought a very sweetness to it also that really did match the energy that brandy had like these mm-hmm. both quieter kids who are in households where the leaders of those households are way bigger personalities uh-huh. than they are who don't really understand them and I like the, at the end, the moment that he has with his mom, played by um, Whoopi Goldberg, where she kind of hears him. And we see her kind of, for the first time, hear the men around her. And she yes. see that softness that she has as a mother of being like, you got to do this. We're going to do it. Lionel, make it happen. And even Jason Alexander is like, you want me to do what? And she's like, go. My son needs this. And I'm like, yes, uh-huh. I love it. I love it. <laughs> But even, like, I love how supportive his parents are because there's the moment where Cinderella has to, like, run away at the stroke of midnight. And the king just is like, don't let her get away. He recognizes that, like, she's a really good catch for her kid. Mm-hmm. Or for his kid. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I and like I, that a lot, too. I love that one thing that I remember I recognized when I was rewatching it as an adult is the motherly relationship that Whitney Houston's uh, fairy godmother has with Cinderella because, yeah. and I love that moment. And I, I've recognized this with my relationship with my own mother. When Cinderella leaves the ball early and she's like, I want to go home. I don't feel comfortable here. I'm not good enough to be here. And Whitney Houston's like, Mm-mm, stop. She was like, you are here. Do you not see how amazing you're doing? I know this is hard, but get back in there. And I love that there showed a moment that she wanted to quit. And then that moment that would normally Cinderella would have gone to her mom and like, mom, this is too hard to see that that moment of like, no, it's not, honey, you can do this. I think that was such a beautiful, touching moment, because as kids, a lot of times we have those moments of doubt. And so to have to show that supportive, like parental side, which the story of Cinderella is not historically known for ever showing. Uh-huh. <laughs> like. <laughs> To see that is so cool. And it, it also probably was the first time in years that Cinderella's had someone 
treat her like a daughter. And I Uh think that is, it was such a beautiful, touching moment. And it's one of those ones that like, it doesn't stand out in like the moments that usually people think of right away. But I thought that was so important to show that she wanted to quit. And her quote unquote mom, her fairy godmother, she was more mother than fairy in that moment. And I love that. I think that's beautiful. Mm Mm-hmm. I like don't have anything to say. It was so perfect. Was such a great, a great moment. Yeah. So I think the time has come, Harmony. Cinderella is asking you to the prom. Yeah. Is it a yes, a no, or a maybe? And are you writing anything on the card back? It's a yeah. Like I'm was very. I, I don't want to say that I was shocked by how much I enjoyed this because everyone's only ever said really good things about it. But yeah, I was like fully fully in on this movie and i guess one of the weird takeaways from it is that people credit like tiana from princess and the frog is like ah yes the black disney princess it's like yo we have we have cinderella 97 over here and not that like princess and the frog has it was ever billed as like disney going haha we finally done a black princess but like that was definitely like the air of everyone picking up on it and i've I, I, I like this portrayal and I like that it's blind racial casting and I like all of the little things this movie does in addition to like the big stuff you sort of expect out of a Cinderella story. And I I want to say that more people should recognize this, but clearly, clearly lots of people do. So <laughs> it's fine. It's perfect. Just like <laughs> I have nothing to critique. <laughs> And Ventress, how about you? Final thoughts on Cinderella? Oh, man. I think this should be necessary viewing for every casting director, every young child. Like, it is uh, a beautiful, beautiful movie. And I think that I want people to watch it and just see it, like, as Cinderella. It's a retelling. It's, you know, it's not... It it was groundbreaking at the time, but... Mm -hmm. You know, don't go into it and be like, now we're watching Black Cinderella. You're watching Cinderella. And, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, have fun with it. It is so, so much fun to watch. And I think that's what sets this movie apart for me from a lot of other, like, productions of Cinderella. It's fun. It is such a yeah. blast to watch. Like, you're going to smile the entire time. It's entirely a feel-good movie. And I absolutely love it. I'm so glad that it is on Disney+, Plus and a whole new generation gets to watch it. Like, I fully plan, like, there are several of my friends' children who I'm already planning on sitting down and be like, are we coming over? Guess what we're going to watch. So <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. And I, I think you're totally right. I think having this exposure for a new generation is going to be really impactful for, for so many kids, especially because now, like, it's people who are around our age and a little bit older who now have these young children. Mm-hmm. So this is the form of nostalgia that we are able to pass on. And that's, I think this is a beautiful example of that. Yeah. Ventures, thank you so much for coming on because like, it's so nice to see your bright and shining face. Like <laughs> we see you every morning because like we have a framed picture of you from Cannibal the Musical sitting yeah, next to our bed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. Oh, God, it's still so perfect. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I forgot that that was a gift that uh, I think we had secretly left in your room, if I'm correct. Yes. Did. Didn't you just come in one day and that was just there? <laughs> yes. 
So for any of our listeners who might want to like check out some of the stuff you do, uh, where can they find you on the internet if you want them to find you on the internet? Yeah, um, you can see some of my cosplay stuff on Instagram. Uh, my account, I believe, is mixed underscore madness cosplay. I say I believe because I've been with conventions and things not happening and haven't been posting that much there. But uh, you can see my work there and I have a Facebook page with the same name. Perfect. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at This Ends at Prom. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BJ Colangelo. Harmony, where are you at? I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. And as always, huge thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use title for our theme song. So this week, something different. I'm actually going to... You're the to musical re- theater person. Yeah. Give me music. I'm actually going to recommend an act for you all to check out. Um, the person that I want you all to check out is Baby Storm, and it's Storm with an E. Uh, independent black music creator who was offered like a ton of you know, opportunities to sign with labels and decided, you know what, fuck it. I want to do it my own way. I want to be able to have control of the music that I make. And we've got some really cool stuff. Um, definitely recommend their track Jackson. That's my favorite one, but you can find them on Spotify and on TikTok. So that's Baby Storm with an E. Awesome sauce. All right. And that takes us out on this week's episode. And we will see you all next time. And don't forget, save that last dance for us. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.